0: Good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to Central today, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, experience, I pray and hope that you experience his life and ministry in your heart this morning. We're studying the life of David this winter and asking the question How is grown within us a heart for God? What are the things that the Lord does to, to give us hearts that long for him more than the desires of our flesh? And this morning we turn to chapter 24 of 1 Samuel and we find David running. He's hiding from King Saul and it's a hard season in his life and in which the Lord is teaching David submission. Rather than grasping for his own desires, but patiently waiting for the Lord to bring about his best in his time, in his way. And man, is that a hard lesson to learn. It's hard to be in heart school where the Lord is teaching submission. I wonder if we need it again today. First Samuel 24 beginning in verse 1, hear God's Word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe as he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. "'Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave "'and called after Saul, my lord, the king. "'And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed "'with his face to the earth and paid homage. "'And David said to Saul, "'Why do you listen to the words of men who say, "'Behold, David seeks your harm? "'Behold, this day your eyes have seen "'how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave.'" And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord to place His word deep within our hearts. Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit and open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your gracious word. Enable us to see and follow Jesus as your beloved disciples, we pray in his name. Amen. You know, things don't always appear, uh, aren't always as they appear. Isn't that true? Maybe you've heard of the film movie director M. Night Shyamalan. His movies always have a twist at the end. You remember maybe 25 years ago, his movie The Sixth Sense, it was a story about a little boy who was under the care of a psychiatrist and this boy could see dead people. Remember him whispering, I see dead people. Well, I don't think I'm gonna give the movie away, it's 25 years old, but the twist is that the psychiatrist was dead too and he had no idea. Or his movie, Signs, where there's a family that has gone through tragedy, and the the youngest boy in in the film has asthma, and he's frustrated with his asthma because it keeps him from doing some of the things he wants to do. And yet, the twist at the end is this little boy has an asthma attack right when he was about to be poisoned, and it kept the poison from going into his lungs, and he survived. Things aren't always the way that they appear. It's true in those movies. It's true in real life also. There are twists and turns, and it can be really hard to know what to make of these twists and turns, whether the twists might be incredible blessings of God's providence, or sometimes twists come as a temptation to grasp for something that really doesn't belong to us. It can be really hard to read God's providence, that biblical doctrine that says that God rules over all of His creatures and all their actions. The Lord is at work in the details, large and small, in control of this whole universe. But sometimes it's hard to know what He's doing in it. So how do we as disciples respond when we feel out of control? We respond in submission. That's what He's giving us here in this text, a a lesson on submission, the work that He's doing in our hearts to enable us to follow after Him even when it's hard. What we're going to do this morning is walk through this story and try to understand the scene first, what's going on. It's a strange story. And then we're going to try to look at the lure of temptation that faces all of us. And finally, the power to submit. So first, what's the scene? What happened in this story? Well, we've been studying the life of David and we've seen King Saul struggle against him the whole time we've been studying it. Back in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, Samuel, the prophet, told Saul that God had rejected him. That God had taken the kingdom away from Saul, but Saul just couldn't quite accept it. He over and over again struggled and fought against God's anointed king of his people, David. And in all of that trouble, it's as if Saul couldn't see who his opponent really was. His opponent really ultimately wasn't David. His opponent was God. God. God's the one who took the kingdom away from him. And in Saul's heart, he did not want what the Lord wanted. So he drove like mad to preserve his place, to preserve his reign. And that rebellion at this point drove him out to hunt for David to try to kill him. And he took 3,000 chosen soldiers from Israel in verse 2. It's like 3,000 special forces soldiers and they come upon En it's a green oasis on the shore of the Dead Sea. Before miles and miles and miles, there's just brown and rock. And then you come to this place. I've seen it. It's beautiful. It's, it's green. There's a waterfall there. There's a little place for rocks out where sheep could graze. And then there's a deep cave right there at En Gedi. Saul came to that place, but he didn't know that David and all of his soldiers were hiding inside of it. So he went in to answer the call of nature. And what they had to do, they had to disrobe, had to take it off and lay it in another spot and to go to the bathroom. But, and David's men saw this happen. They had to have been doing the happy dance. I mean, could they believe their incredible fortune? Here was an opportunity to end this war. In, instead, of, uh, instead of continuing to stay on the run all the time, all it would take is one blow of the sword and it's all over. And in verse 4, they invent a promise. They invent this saying that God has delivered his enemy into his hand to do whatever he would like, but that's nowhere in the Bible. Here's the thing. It seemed true, so surely it must have been true. And friends, that is a dangerous place to stand to invent god's promises to baptize what we already want to do it's a dangerous place to be they thought surely god has given Saul into your hand and the great you can have the kingdom once and for all it didn't take an advanced hebrew degree to see this of course this is what's this is what's happening to figure in this providence of god but here's the question is that really god's amazing providence Or was it temptation? Was it a deep temptation for for, for David to grasp something that didn't belong to him in that way? So what does David do? Verse four, he grabs hold of Saul's robe. It was laying over on the side, not right next to him. And he grabbed the robe. The robe was the symbol of the king's authority and he cut off a corner. And what ancient historians tell us is cutting the corner off of the king's robe is a, a way to say power has left you. It's a way to say Elvis has left the building. The kingdom has turned from the house of Saul to the house of David. It was subtle, but a very clear dig. Your time is over, pal. It's my time to reign. He cut the robe, and then in verse 5, he had a conscience attack. His heart struck him. Why? Because as he said, Saul was still the Lord's anointed no matter what he was doing. He wasn't sitting on the throne by accident, but by God's will. It didn't really even matter that Saul wasn't a leader worthy of respect. God had placed Saul on the throne and God was worthy of respect and honor. The Lord's anointed held this unique bond between the Lord and his people. He was set apart to rule on behalf of the Lord so that to attack the Lord's anointed was the same as trying to remove the Lord himself from his place. And in David's mind, to cut at the king's robe, was to grasp, was to strike out at the Lord. He had a conscience attack for trying to take the kingdom by force. And so in verse six, he began to argue with his men. It says in verse seven, he persuaded them not to kill Saul. The word persuaded literally says he cut them down. David forcefully argued, he fought with these guys. You can't do this. You can't take Saul's life when they felt like it was God's good gift to put him right in their hands. That's that's the scene in front of us. How do we make sense between providence or temptation? Temptation temptation is a it's a strong lure sometimes in our lives think about this from David's perspective he was running for his life living out in the wilderness in caves separated from his family and if he just killed Saul it would all be over all it would take is that one strike of the sword all, no more hiding no more dirt floors no more life on the run imagine David crouching in the dark wondering is this it Is this my opportunity to to finally have the kingdom come to me or is this temptation? Imagine him wondering, do I really have to sin in order to receive God's blessed promise? It's one of those moments in life, that lure of temptation, a a fork in the road. Which way am I going to go? Am I going to grasp for myself something I want, or will I humbly submit to the Lord's rule and reign? Do I have to grasp and sin in order to get what I think God wants me to have? Or am I willing to refuse sinful means to advance myself? Of course, the Lord had promised the kingdom to David. He did it in chapter 16 and 20 and, and 23. But the question was, How? He had promised the kingdom to David, but how was where the temptation lay? Saul was the Lord's anointed and David had no right to take his life. So the question became, can I trust God? Can I trust God to bring about his best and his promise for me without my grasping and laying hold of sin to try to usher it in in hurry? So it's David's question. The question comes to you and to me too, are we content not only to pursue the Lord's will, but do so in His way and in His time? Friends, we don't ever have to sin in order to bring God's promises to fruition. We're called as His disciples to submit to His rule and pursue His way in His time and His will. When David's conscience pricked him in verse 5. We see him at the end of the section, casting himself in humility and submission before the Lord. Look at verse 12. He said to Saul, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge between me and you. And verse 15, it's not printed there, but verse 15 says, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it, And may the Lord plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. See, ultimately David said he could wait for the gift of the Lord's throne rather than seize it through sinful means like murder. He was willing to submit and wait on the Lord's timing even though it meant more suffering. It meant longer hardship. How hard that must have been in the moment to resist, as one commentator calls it, the temptation of the shortcut. You know, the temptation of the shortcut. I, I can see where God wants me to go, and if I just cut the angle here, then surely I'm going I'm to get it faster. But maybe that's not the way the Lord wants us to go. It wasn't just David who faced the temptation of the shortcut, but also the greater David, the son of David, the Lord Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil took Jesus out and tempted him by offering him what God had already promised. The devil offered Jesus the kingdom. He offered him the nations, but his father had already promised him that very thing. The question was, how? How are you going to get that kingdom, Jesus? The devil offered Jesus a painless kingdom. He offered him a throne for the taking, only if Jesus would bow down and worship The evil one himself. The Bible says he was tempted. A bloodless revolution. A kingdom without a cost and no cost of bearing sin. No cost of taking on himself the wrath of his heavenly father against sin. No separation from his father. No crucifixion. Of course it would have been easier to take the shortcut. But Jesus resisted a crown without the cross. And in doing so, in doing the Lord's work, in the Lord's way, which led Jesus to the cross, it brings you and I our salvation by His blood that was shed for us, that same blood that frees us from that temptation of taking the shortcut. We all come face to face with that. I've I've heard it said more than once, 500 times I've heard it in my ministry career, the Lord wants me to be happy. You ever heard that? There's a lot of truth to that. The Lord wants His children to be blessed. He wants His children to flourish. He wants us to enjoy Him and and enjoy His world. It's true, but but how? How does He want that promise to come to fruition in our lives? I've heard it said before, the Lord wants me to be happy, so if I have to break my marital vow in order to have that happiness, so be it. It's a temptation of the shortcut. Or the Lord The Lord wants me to provide for my family. Of course he does. That's that's the right thing. So surely a little cheating on my taxes doesn't really matter all that much, right? Some temptation of the shortcut. Or the Lord wants me to have victory over my enemies. Of of course he does. So if I bend the truth about those enemies and spread a few lies about them, that's really not a big deal, right? Temptation of the shortcut. Or in relationships, when... And we know that the Lord wants us to have soft, sorrowful hearts of repentance toward our sins. And we, as parents, we might say to our kids, I want you to have that sorrow for your sins. So we pour on the shame, we pour on the law, we pour on the harsh correction, trying to play junior Holy Spirit. I'll make sure your heart's sorry for this sin. It's the temptation of the shortcut. It's taking all of what God truly wants, but taking a shortcut to try to get there. Friends, the truth is that we are not called to pursue sin in order to bring about God's blessings. We pursue the Lord's will, but we're called to do it in His way. Sometimes we look for the shortcut around the laborious call to holiness in all of our ways but most of the time it is in the hard ways it's in submitting to the Lord in the difficulty that he does that purifying work of bringing holiness about in our lives it's in submitting to the Lord even in hardship it's it's like a refiner's fire where the Lord begins to work in our hearts and give us hearts for him when we submit even when it's challenging. So where does the power to do that come from? Where does strength uh, for, for David to wait for the Lord rather than grasp for the kingdom? Where might you and I find the power to wait on the Lord to do his work? Where might we find the ability to live in submission when we can just grasp and have it so much faster? Well, first, look at verse 12 again. David said, may the Lord judge between me and you, between Saul and David, May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. The temptation in front of David was to strike out in harshness, but he says later in verse 15, the Lord will plead my cause. There's power to be found in remembering that our God is a good judge. He's he's filled with a heart for justice, that he knows what is right and he's willing to do what is right even if we can't understand it, even if we have to wait on it. And if there's a broken relationship, if there's hardship between two people, vengeance isn't ours to take. Vengeance is not ours to lay hold of. It belongs to the Lord. We don't have to grab hold of those things. But rather we submit to our God, believing that He is a God of justice. He is a God who knows what is right, and you and I don't have to live with the desire to pay back other people when they've hurt us, or when they've threatened us. We have a saying in our society, it's payback is hell. Ever hear people say that? It's not just a swear word, it's more true than we might realize. If we live in cycles of retribution, you harmed me, I'm gonna get you back. You slandered me, wait till you hear what I say about you you attacked me, watch out, I'm coming for you. When we live like that, we are trapped in this, this hellish existence, trading blow for blow, hurt for hurt, and it feels so much more like hell than it will offer us the satisfaction of justice that we long for in our hearts. Friends, our God reigns and he knows what righting wrongs looks like, He knows how to do it better than we do. And in his time, he perfectly will. At the end of the world, the Lord will judge every injustice. He will bring everything wrong untrue because he is a good and perfect judge. He knows how to right wrongs. Even if we have to wait on it sometimes. It is safe to trust This God who gave his own son to live and die and be raised again from the dead so that we could be forgiven for our sin, so that evil in this world and in our own hearts would be conquered, that same God who sent his son for you is powerful enough to be trusted in the moment, to defend you far better than you can defend yourself, defend you so that you don't have to take payback into your own hands. Our God is a God of justice who gives us power to submit when we remember that He is a good and gracious King and He will do exactly what is right. And second, more generally, take a step back and look at what David says in verses 12 to 15. The Lord's going to decide between us. The Lord's going to avenge me and the Lord is the one who's going to plead my cause and defend my life. You hear what David is saying there? He's standing in front of a man who could kill him at any moment. And yet David is confident that his very life is in the Lord's hands. Your future is in God's hands. Your life is safe in the hands of of this God who has come for you. Every detail of your life is sifted through the fingers of the God whose hands were nailed to the cross for you. Your future, your life is entirely safe in his hands, his nail-scarred hands. And when he calls you to wait, even when, maybe especially when, it doesn't make little sense at all. When he calls us to do that, his spirit will enable us to submit. Because we grasp not for a future of our own making. But he enables us to lay hold of the Jesus who has grasped hold of you. And we are secure, we are satisfied. Not because we can grasp and and make ourselves mighty, make ourselves great and bring our own desired future about. Our future is satisfying and safe because the Lord Jesus holds you fast. And he's promised he will never forget you. He will never let you go. He will never forsake you. He holds you fast. And sometimes it's in the heart school of submission where well, we learn that in a deeper way, a, a real living it out kind of way. I think I've been in that kind of heart school this fall. I uh, don't really know how else to explain these debilitating migraines. I've had, for, I've had them for 30 years, but they've become more intense. And I can't stand it. It's not just because the pain is bad, but I loathe feeling weak. I don't like feeling limited. I don't like having to take rests in the middle of the day. I don't like that the Lord has put me in this headlock, this this heartlock, forcing me to stop when there's so much more ministry to be done, when there's so many more needs that, that need to be addressed in his name and in his power. And there've been times this fall when I asked the Lord, why are you making it so hard for me to serve you right now? Why are you doing this, Lord? I think He's been teaching me a little bit more about submission, about being rooted in His promise to never leave us and never forsake us, to be with us in the pain, and to recognize that He is bigger than any limits that we have in our lives. He's bigger than anything that feels like it's a threat to His promise being worked out in our lives. God's bigger than all of it. I've been reading through this a biography of a pastor, uh, Hobson, who was in Liverpool in the 1800s when J.C. Ryle was the bishop. And Pastor Hobson battled severe depression. There were months where he would have to be out of his pulpit, out of his ministry, because he just couldn't, function. He was in such the grip of depression, and he was ashamed of it. I'm not. I'm grateful that he was honest. It, it blesses my soul that he actually wrote about his limitation and his depression and how the Lord came to find him in the middle of it. But he wrote a letter to his friend, Ryle. Say, what what am I to do? I question my call. I question my circumstances. What's God doing here? And J.C. Ryle wrote this. Sometimes God requires us to do less now so that we may do more for him later and longer. That's a good perspective on the limits in our lives. Maybe the Lord has some other story of his providence he's working out. And then he added this. And sometimes the Lord requires us to do less so that he shows us he's able to do his kingdom work with or without us. He is perfectly able to bring him to fruition all of his promises that 's submission. How do we respond when we feel like we 're out of control? How do we respond when there are limits in our lives or things going on that we don 't like? How do we respond when God is slower to answer us in the middle of our needs? What do we do? We submit because our God is good, and our God is faithful. And by the cross, our God is proven he's always faithful and he will never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard lesson for us because it seems so natural in our flesh to grasp for what we want, especially when what we want is what we think you want us to have. And yet sometimes, Lord, you tell us to be still and know that you are God. So Father, would you help us learn this lesson of submission and give us hearts that beat for you, hearts that not only long for your will, but for it to be done in your way and in your time. Give us hearts of faith when we doubt. Give us hearts of trust when we're afraid and when we're worried. And give us hearts that see you on the throne and you will never leave us or forsake us.